Next, on Lectures in History, American University professor Ibram Kendi teaches a class about Malcolm X's views on Africa. Kendi argues that through the 1960s, Africa had been associated with a lack of civilization and describes how Malcolm X advocated for African Americans to have a more positive view of Africa in order to develop better self-esteem and combat racism. So uh, today we're going to be, of course, uh, reviewing and discussing section that really talks about Malcolm's views, Malcolm X's views on, on Africa and even the Middle East. And of course, we read a few of the letters that he sent home when he was traveling in 1959 as well as in 1964 in, in Africa as well as the Middle East, uh, as well as a few speeches that he made uh, one in 1959 and another in 1965 before he was killed that really sort of talked about his viewpoints uh, on Africa. And then also a very critical interview that he gave when he attended the organizational Organization of African Unity uh, Conference in, in late July of 1964 in which he sort of discussed his strategy and the reason why he came to that conference and was appealing to these African heads of state. So hopefully everyone's read um, and, and listened to these speeches and so we could really sort of get a sense of, of Malcolm X's viewpoints on Africa. But really, I mean, I think in order for us to really understand why Malcolm expressed some of the things he did in these, in these letters, because in many ways we see that he's sort of arguing against particular ideas within the black community that were widespread uh, in Africa. It's, it's critical for us to, to have a, a very good vantage point of, of, of how Americans, and more specifically black Americans, were thinking about Africa in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, but before we talk about that, um, I, uh, in many ways, when I, when I think about my own life uh, and even my existence itself, it's, it's deeply tied to Africa. Uh, some of you open your eyes like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so my father and mother, uh, they actually attended this concert together in they didn't. They they had met before the concert a few times, but they sort of reconnected after this concert that that happened in December of 1973. You smiling? I can't tell what happened. How my parents hooked up. So so actually, so so my father approached my mother. They talked after the conference. My father got the digits, and and he called my mother a few days later to really ask her out. And my mother stated that she had been called to the mission field. She actually was leaving to go to Liberia in a few months and basically told him that, I mean, you know, we can talk, but if we get close before I leave, because it was still a few months away, I'm still going to go to Africa. And they both were sort of part of this 
black power movement. I think I spoke about this earlier in class and more specifically the black theology movement. More specifically, this notion that sort of God was black and Christianity itself should be this sort of tool of liberation. And really, every sector of the black power movement, and really black theologians were sort of one sector, were connecting to Africa. In the case of of those who were inspired by black theology, many of them were returning to Africa as missionaries, but in a way, a different type of missionary than many sort of Europeans uh, of previous generations. So she told him, I'm going to Africa, and she ended up going. And they got close before she left, so they managed to stay in touch during the nine months that she was in Liberia. She actually taught uh, at this school uh, in this rural sort of village outside of Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia, and she was there for nine months. And, and so I grew up, as you would imagine, hearing about these stories. She just loved to talk about Liberia. Uh, but I simultaneously grew up, as a result of her, hearing very fond and positive things about Africa. And, and I, I didn't realize until later in my life that in many ways I was lucky because many uh, sons and, and daughters had not um, been born to people who traveled to Africa or who had, fond, who had a fond perspective of Africa, um, even in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and certainly that was the case in the late 1950s, when, when in the early 1960s, when, when Malcolm was, was, was speaking out and speaking for Africa. And, and just to sort of give us a sense of, of, of just how much African Americans knew so little about Africa, or when they did know their, their thoughts were negative. Um, anybody heard of W.B. Du Bois? Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> so so W.B. Du Bois, three years after publishing his landmark book, The Souls of Black Folk, which he published in in 1903, he helped invite this Columbia University anthropologist by the name of France Boaz, who came to Atlanta University where he was teaching. Du Bois was teaching at Atlanta University at the time, and he gave the commencement address. And at this commencement address, France Boaz recounted the history of the glorious history of African kingdoms below the Sahara de- Desert for upwards of a thousand years before the slave trade. And, and he, so he talked about these classical pre-colonial African kingdoms like, like Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. And Du Bois later wrote in one of his books, quote, I was too astonished to speak. He, he talked about Boaz as suddenly awaking him from the paralysis of the commonly held judgment taught to me in high school in two of the world's great universities that Africa had no history. Those two great universities were Harvard University, where he earned his bachelor's and PhD, and the University of Berlin, which in the early 1900s was the preeminent university in the Western world. And so he, the quite possibly the greatest and most educated African-American in the country had no clue about Africa's history. 
Uh, and, and so for him, he viewed Africa like, Afri like African-Americans generally viewed Africa as this sort of place of, 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 of barbarism, this place of where civilization was, was never really known. And he also wrote in his reflection that I came then and afterwards to realize how the silence and neglect of science can let truth utterly disappear. So essentially that truth about Africa. And so then he took it upon himself. And really from that point forward, he started to write more and more and speak more and more uh, about Africa. But, but unfortunately, uh, by 1912, Du Bois was, was battling a novel that was first sort of published in this periodical uh, named All Stories Magazine, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Anybody know what novel I'm talking about? It became an instant sensation. And, and this novel, more than any other cultural product of the 20th century, locked the concept of the animal African into the American mind. The main character in this novel was Tarzan. And, and so the plot was this, this, this orphan, infant of, of white parents is, is abandoned in Central Africa and is raised by this sort of ape named Kayla and this tribe of apes. And John Clayton is then named, named Tarzan, meaning white skin in apes language. He grows up, he becomes the ape tribe's most skilled hunter and, and warrior. He, he somehow finds his, his parents' cabin and teaches himself to read while his body is being chiseled away from this sort of savage upbringing. He, he quote, his straight and perfect figure, I'm narrating the book, muscled as the best of the ancient Roman gladiators must have been muscled and yet with the soft and sinuous curves of the Greek god. So this is how he's sort of being narrated in this text. And, and so essentially, this plot is somewhat similar to a recent uh, film. The name of it is escaping me with the, with the blue people. Avatar. Avatar. It's basically the same plot. He becomes the greatest of the warriors. Right? He becomes the greatest of this sort of ape tribe. And so really he's relating to the apes, but then he also comes across and has to relate to who else? Africans. And so it's basically Tarzan, apes, and Africans. And of course Tarzan becomes the superior warrior and becomes the most superior sort of being in that sort of area. And, and of course Tarzan inspired, this novel inspired comic strips, merchandise, 27 sequels, and 45 motion pictures, the first occurring in 1918. And, and I don't know if there's a more famous fictional character in the 20th century than Tarzan, and it's quite possibly no more racist plot than the plot that Burroughs wrote up and continued to write up until his death in 1950. Um, and just to give you a sense of how salient and pervasive Tarzan was, because for many Americans, Tarzan was Africa. They were witnessing and viewing Africa 
in understanding and learning Africa through Tarzan, to the point in which in 1966 at Howard University, uh, students there elected the first black woman homecoming queen with, with natural hair. It was like the start of black power at Howard and as well as around the country. And, and so it just led to this massive student march around campus. And, and what the students chanted was, Ngawa black power, Ngawa black power. What, what, what was Ngawa? Ngawa was the way in which Tarzan related and communicated to animals and black people in that movie. So, so when people thought of how even words that Africans used, or people thought of how to communicate with Africans, they thought of Tarzan. So really, this, this is what sort of, this was the, 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 the world, the nation, the community of ideas that really raised Malcolm, and that Malcolm was facing in the late 1950s when he started challenging many of these ideas. And, and we should know that in many ways, Malcolm was lucky too, because his parents were raised in what movement? Who were they following? Marcus Garvey, right? And so Marcus Garvey, in the 19-teens and in the 1920s, talked fondly about Africa and, and about African people worldwide and about Africa for the Africans. But for many Americans, for many African Americans, of course, they weren't raised to think of, of Africa as this equal place with the rest of the world. They, they were raised to think of the dark continent where enlightenment had never existed, a continent that was impoverished, impoverished because of the poverty, the literally the behavioral and the cultural poverty of the people. The African was synonymous with the savage, and the savage was synonymous with the animal, and the animal was synonymous with the African. And, and so as a result, many, as I stated, African Americans did not want to be associated with those savages, those animals, and more so wanted to be associated with civilization, with America. Um, and so for Malcolm, and, you know, as we sort of read about in, in our text, he was quite happy in 1959 when, when he received the assignment from, from Elijah Muhammad to, to travel to the Middle East and even to Africa uh, on behalf of Elijah Muhammad. So Elijah was asked to come to Egypt uh, by the president of, of Egypt at the time, and, and, and Elijah Muhammad decided to send his, his emissary instead to sort of pave the way for for Elijah, so that was really Malcolm's, even though he grew up having been taught about the beauties and the glories of, of Africa and its history, this was his first trip to Africa and even to the Middle East. And, and, and being someone who identified as, as, as Muslim, he of course was excited uh, to visit a Muslim nation uh, in, in Egypt. And he also hoped and planned when he arrived and sort of when he planned his trip to, to go on a Hajj as well. So he arrives on July 4th in Egypt, but immediately, of course, falls ill. And so he's not able to, to travel to, to Mecca, but he's able to spend more time in, in Egypt as well as he traveled to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, and this is one of the more critical periods 
in Malcolm's life. And, and we wouldn't necessarily see the effects of it in his public rhetoric, but according to many biographers of Malcolm, this was a critical period as he lived and observed in these Muslim nations because he began to see how much Nation of Islam's theology and traditions and practices was so unorthodox. And, and so, but of course, <laughs> he couldn't necessarily publicly speak out against those, against those traditions and, and, and policies, but he certainly saw that the distinctions uh, when he was in Saudi Arabia as well as in, in Egypt. But one thing that I think struck him about Saudi Arabia, and of course he wrote back about this, was all of the, the variety of skin colors that, that existed in Saudi Arabia. He almost sort of, he stated it was almost like black America. This, you have the lightest of people as well as the darkest of people in this letter home. And he talked about that all, almost all of these Saudi Arabians would be, quote, Jim Crowed at home. And, and, and what he was seeking to do is make this sort of connection between people in the Middle East uh, with, with African Americans, just as he would try to make a similar connection to, to African people in African, with, with African Americans, specifically making the case that African people were concerned and were looking into and were studying what was happening to African Americans uh, in the United States. He, he, was, he argued, of course, in his letter home from the Sudan when he visited there in 1959 that he wanted African Americans to, to realize that Africans cared about them. And, and I think he, 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 he talked about how he was trying to fight against this, this, this U.S. propaganda that, of course, was saying, oh, don't worry about those, those, those Africans because they don't care about you, meaning that's what it was saying to African Americans. And, and he was saying, they were saying the same thing in Africa. In other words, y'all shouldn't, those African Americans don't care about you either. He, he also sort of made very plain what people in Africa thought about the condition of, of African Americans. He, he, he writes that the African finds it difficult to understand why in a land that advocates equality, 20 million black Americans are without equality. Why in a land classing itself as a leader of the free world, 20 million black Americans are not free. Why in a land, colleges and all forms of educational opportunities, 20 million Negroes need army escorts to accompany them to many of these institutions. And then he ends this letter stating, here in Africa, the all-seeing eye of the, African, of, of, of the African masses is upon America. And, and this would become a theme sort of throughout his speeches over the next five years, making this case that to African Americans, Africa cares about you. Um, and because, as I stated, he was both trying to sort of build this, this sense of Afro-Asian solidarity while also trying to sort of rebuild what was known as Pan-Africanism. And, and really the Pan-Africanism of Garveyism. This, this notion that, that African people worldwide have this sort of collective shared identity, this collective shared 
political sort of interest, this collective shared our cultural similarities. And so essentially, African people worldwide need to care about each other, need to struggle for each other, and need to come together for uh, each other. And, but at the same time, I think the Pan-African unity came much easier for him in 1959 than Afro-Asian solidarity. Because from the standpoint of the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, he was arguing that the solution to the Negro problem was a separate black state. <laughs> so he essentially wanted complete separation of black people from everybody, not just white people, but all non-black people. And so I think, it, 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 you know, so Malcolm, of course, had to struggle. That sort of certainly caused Malcolm to sort of emphasize more so the Pan-African unity than the Afro-Asian unity in those letters. He also, of course, we, we also listened to this speech that he gave in, in 1959 um, for African Liberation Day. And so, you know, the Nation of Islam was not the only groups or organization in the United States that, that, that was advocating pan-African ideas. There were many groups that were doing so, specifically in, 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 in New York City. And Malcolm, of course, was connected uh, to many of these groups. And, and so he was invited, um, as well as Elijah Muhammad, to, to come and speak at this African Liberation Day. And, and, and yet again, in this speech, as, 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 as in his letters home from, from Africa, he continuously tried to sort of emphasize the unity of African people. And, and one of the ways he, he, he did this is he sounded very similar in 1964 as he did in 1959 when, when he would talk about the enemy, the European enemy of every single African state. So your European enemy is French. Your European, who's the European enemy of this country, of that country, is, 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 is the British, is, is, is the Portuguese, uh, is the Dutch. And, and what do they have all in common? They're all from Europe. And what do we have all in common? We're all from Africa. And, and he would make this case that, that they're working together to oppress us speaking to black people, so why aren't we not working together? And, and so he asked in that speech, how could so few white people rule so many black people? How could Europe, which of course, from a land standpoint, is much smaller uh, than, than Africa. Africa is three times the size of the United States, let alone Europe. How could such a small landmass, such a smaller group of people rule such a massive continent? such a massive group of people. Well, according to him, the disunity of those people. And so, of course, he wanted to emphasize, to really encourage uh, uh, people of African descent around the world to come together, arguing again and again that, that, quote, we have a common enemy. And that common enemy is colonial, is the, those colonial masters uh, in Europe. I should also add, as, as I think we've talked about previously in previous classes, that, that this was a critical sort of period in the history of Africa, right? Because what was going on in Africa? 
What was going on in Africa in 1959, 1960? Yes. Decolonization. Decolonization all over the continent, right? And, and of course, these decolonization movements were inspiring African Americans and were, of course, inspiring uh, people of African descent around the world. But, but he didn't want people to just become inspired. <laughs> he wanted people to become connected. He wanted this to become a global struggle against white supremacy. And, and he felt it was critical to emphasize that unity in order to make that, that global struggle happen. Of course, Malcolm's probably his most critical uh, sort of trip throughout his life is when he went back to Africa in the Middle East in, in 1964. And this was after, of course, he, he left the Nation of Islam or pushed out of the Nation of Islam. And he, in 1964, would, would go on two extended trips to, to Africa. The first, of course, left on April 13th 1964, and, and on this trip, he would travel throughout the Middle East and, 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 and Africa, traveling to Egypt, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Ghana, Morocco, and, and Algeria. But of course, what was the most critical aspect of this trip? What city, what town was most important to, to Malcolm's development? Yes? Mecca. Mecca, without question, right? And, and of course, as we've talked about in previous classes, being raised in Nation of Islam theology, he was raised to think that white people were fundamentally evil. And in many ways, his own experiences, his own life experiences with, with white people reinforced that. So when he was told that while he was in prison, you know, by his, his brothers and sisters who, who had converted to the nation, it, it didn't surprise him. It actually clicked for him because according to him, it made sense in terms of the way he had been treated, in terms of the way his parents had been treated. Of course, he's, he's, he's the son of a, a, a father who most likely was lynched. Uh, some of his uncles were lynched in Georgia. Uh, he, of course, experienced and, and, and watched his own family broken up and not supported by, by Michigan authorities. He, he saw his mother, uh, instead of being supported by other people because she had so many children to take care of on her own after her husband was, was assassinated, he, he, he saw her thrown into what? An insane asylum, right? And so... And then, of course, the way in which he was treated in, 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 in high school when, when he spoke about being a, a, a lawyer, apparently, and, 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 and his teacher said, that's not the type of job for a Negro. You should think about being a carpenter. Or when he felt he was being a mascot, um, you know, in other times, or even when he started uh, robbing houses in Boston. Uh, and as part of his robbery crew, he had to white women. And, and of course, he felt when he was arrested and, and found out that these two white women were assisting him, he felt he got a much harsher sentence because of his affiliation with these women. So of course, you know, up to that point, Malcolm's life 
he had experienced so many negative things at the hands of, of, of white people. But it wasn't until he, he went to Mecca and he, for the first time, had not just positive experiences, but he, he was in a space where there were people of all different colors, hair textures. There was tremendous amounts of diversity in Mecca when he visited racial diversity, but he simultaneously saw all of these people were essentially doing the same thing. They were all engaged in the same rituals. They were all, according to him, treating each other as if they were brothers. He, he writes in his first letter home, in which he, he has to tell people back home, you may be shocked that I may say this, but he, he says there were tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the, the world. They, they were of all colors, from, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans, but, but all participating in the same ritual, displaying a spirit of unity and, and, and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe could never exist between the white and non-white. But what's interesting about this first letter home, and really his first trip, was what did he assign as the cause of essentially witnessing this, this anti-racist sort of space and, and behavior among, among white people and, and, and even non-white people? What, did he consider to be the fundamental cause of what he was experiencing? Yes. They're all Muslim. They're all what? They were all Muslim. Yeah, so they were all Muslim. So, there, so what he, did he think was really causing it? Yeah, Islam. And, and so he didn't just sort of write about the unity and, 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 and the brotherhood, as he called it, and, and, and these experiences. and. He, he also stated, you know what? What could be the cure for racism in America? He, he made the case that Islam could be the cure for racism in America. Now, of course, uh, many uh, black people in, 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 in multiracial uh, Muslim nation would have, would have probably <laughs> had, had issues with that type of statement. But, but he, of course, offered that as a solution. Uh, to the racial problem in America. And as you would imagine, if you go on a Hajj and, and you have that type of religious, incredible religious experience, which of course is, is supposed to be uh, for, 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 for Muslims, it, it, he was, I think, in many ways trying to fuse his religious experience with the political experience uh, he just experienced. And I think that was the way in which he was able to sort of to do so. Um, yet again, when he, when he of course ventures to, to some of the African nations, he, 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 he again pushes back against what he calls this propaganda that Africans are not interested in, in the plight of, of Africans. He, he writes back home, our, our African brothers and sisters love us and are happy to learn that we are also awakening from our long sleep and developing strong love for them. I don't know if y'all noticed from these, specifically these readings for this week, 
you know, like we like to call, talk about people being woke today. <laughs> but Malcolm was talking about, about that, right, 60 years ago, 55 years ago, the concept of being awake, right? That was almost in everything we wrote, we, we read, right? This, this concept of, of, of African people, of, of African Americans in particular, waking up to reality. So, so I don't want y'all to think y'all just originated woke, right? <laughs> um, so, so another interesting aspect, I think, of, of, of these letters he wrote home on his first visit in 1964 was, was, was what was ironic to him about integration. You remember reading that? Like, he, he, he talked about him coming across white people in Africa. And he, he talked about them trying to integrate into Africa's wealth and beauty. At the same time, they are what? Denying or spitting on African Americans who are trying to integrate with them. And so he really beat home this, this contradiction. And, and really, I think in many of his speeches on Africa, he would typically come back to this point, specifically the first side of the point. Because when he would, essentially, he was an evangelist for Africa. And, and so in his speeches, when he would try to speak about the beauties of Africa, he would say things like, why do you think Europeans are there? Why do you think they keep coming there? They keep coming there because it's so beautiful. And you're the one. And so, and, and it would be a very sort of uh, seductive and engrossing concept when he would talk about how white people are trying to integrate into Africa, especially when he's speaking to black people who think that white people are going to go to places that they consider to be beautiful and what's best. So it actually, it, it meets them precisely where they are and takes them where he wants them to go, which is to have a better viewpoint about Africa, that, that Africa is wealthy and beautiful, and, and that is why white people are there. That's why they're fighting and they're dying to keep their African colonies. They want to stay in Africa. And he, he kept kidding home, again, these these contradictions, uh, which I thought were, of course, critical to, to his philosophy, philosophies on Africa. But he wasn't like Garvey in a very public sense. And, and what I mean by that is he, wasn't, he didn't speak about African-Americans returning to Africa physically. How did he want African-Americans to return to Africa? In, in what sphere? So he said not physically, but in what way did he want African people, African-Americans, to return to Africa? Yes. Mentally? Yeah, mentally. I mean, for the lack of a better term. He would say, he would talk, he would say to African-Americans that you left your mind in Africa. You left your language in Africa. You left your culture in Africa. You left who you are in Africa. I'm, I'm trying to, does, do I sound a little bit like Malcolm? Uh, so, so, of course, if, if you make the case to people that they have left something somewhere, right, and specifically talking about culturally and philosophically, 
He was urging them to what? Go back there and get what you lost, right? Uh, and this was critical to him, this sort of cultural and philosophical return to Africa was absolutely critical to, to, to Malcolm X's uh, ideas because he felt it was critical to black people developing a strong sense of what? Yes. Solidarity. Not just solidarity, but he wanted each and every individual black person, he felt by them developing a more positive sort of viewpoint towards Africa, they would develop, develop a more positive viewpoint to what else? Themselves. That was, so he, of course, made that conceptual, you know, and, and of course that speech that we heard him give in one of his last speeches in, in 1964, he would make this point again and again. He, of course, in that speech, in, 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 in many speeches, he, he would, and I think even last week, that, that run in which he was like, who taught you to hate yourself, right? Who taught you to hate the hair on your head? Who, who taught you to hate the color of your skin? Who, who taught you to hate your, am I getting Malcolm a little bit better? Is that better? Do I have my Denzel? No, but, um, and, and so he would constantly talk about what we now call internalized racism. He would constantly talk about how black people thought that there was something wrong with black people. How, how black people thought black people were inferior. How, how, how black people thought that there was something wrong with themselves and the way they looked and the way they acted and they felt they needed leadership or to be led by my white people. And, and he thought all of these ideas, all of these racist ideas that, that, that black people consumed that black people reproduced were directly tied to their perspective on Africa. He thought that that was, of course, the root of it all. He thought that that was the rug, and if he just swept up that rug up from under them, then black people in America could, could start having a more positive conception of self. And, 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 and of course, there's a tremendous amount of truth to this idea. I mean, throughout African-American history, I mean, we, we, of course, learned about Du Bois, what Du Bois thought in, in, in 1906. To give another example, in, in 1817, there was this group called the American Colonization Society that had just been formed. And this group was presided over by some of the most powerful people in the United States, Henry Clay, Bushrod Washington, who George Washington's relative, a series of other major political figures. And, and basically what this group was seeking to do, the American Colonization Society, was essentially to take free blacks and return them to Africa. That was essentially their mission. And, and it was the American Colonization Society that was critical in the founding of Liberia, where, of course, my mother would go 150 years later. And, and of course, in the early 1820s, a few hundred African Americans were, were sort of sent to, to Liberia. So, so what the American Colonization Society hoped was that they could essentially get rid of the Negro problem, because the Negro problem was the free black person, not the black person, 
but, but the black person that was free. So it was this sort of coalition between those slave owners who, who felt that free blacks posed a threat to enslaved Africans and to sort of reformers who, who felt that if they slowly, they gradually ended slavery, they could also gradually get rid of those freed blacks from slavery. And, and so black people got word of this, particularly the very powerful uh, black community in Philadelphia. And they, they got together at this famed church in 1817 to decide whether African Americans would support the American Colonization Society's efforts to send basically free blacks back to Africa. And they resolved against the American Colonization Society. They, they felt that they were deeply tied to the struggle, the abolitionist struggle, and they, sort of, they felt that they just couldn't leave the free enslaved black people here by themselves. They, they classified them as their brethren. But what they also said in their resolution is, we don't want to go back to the savage wilds of Africa. And so even within this sort of progressive, for the lack of a better term, community of black people who was opposing the American Colonization Society in 1817, they, they were also reinforcing ideas about this savage, dark, backward Africa. And of course, that would continue through Du Bois in 1903. And of course, he would move away from that in the later part of his life. But, but many African Americans uh, certainly did not. And, and generally speaking, even when I actually ventured to Africa, I, I first visited Ghana. Man, I don't want to tell you what year, because I'm going to date myself. Um, and I never forget people asking the silliest questions. I remember one person asked me, so like, did you like, were you able to go shopping? Like, do they have malls in Africa? And, you know, some of the most basic questions, do people wear clothes? Like, you know, all different types of questions, you know, about Africa. And this was in the 21st century, right? So imagine uh, what people were thinking uh, back then. And, and certainly, um, so Malcolm X, of course, my... Uh, Excuse me. So, so, of course, Malcolm X thought it was critical, it was absolutely critical to reformulate African-American ideas of Africa because he felt it would reformulate African-Americans' ideas of themselves. Um, and, and so, of course, in that speech, he, he speaks of all of the different ways in which black people hate themselves and all of the different ways in which black people hate Africa, and of course made that connection. And he stated, and I quote, in hating Africa, we ended up hating ourselves and not really realizing it. Because you, you can't hate the roots of a tree and not hate the tree. You can't hate your origin and not hate yourself. And, and he said, he, he, he would make this case that, that, that white people knew that. And, and according to him, that's why they were feeding this sort of negative propaganda about Africa, because according to him, 
it would cause black people to hate their African identity, to hate their African heritage, to certainly hate calling themselves African and um, hate their skin color. He also would make this case, which is even still a radical, which was a radical idea then and even is a radical idea today. He, he would make this case that African Americans or the what do we call it, the so-called Negro, uh, was more African than American. And, and so he wanted, he even wanted people to connect themselves to Africa through how they identified themselves as African. And of course, that furthered Pan-Africanism because if you had people of African descent around the world all identifying as, as, as African, then it certainly would, would further that sort of pan-African unity that he felt was necessary to challenge uh, global white supremacy. But what was also interesting is he would make the case that, that, that African Americans are more African than they are American because they have never tasted the fruits of Americanism, right? And he, would, he went on this sort of long run about just because you're at the what? At the table <laughs> doesn't mean you're what? Doesn't mean you're dining, right? Just because you're in America doesn't mean you're an American, right? That was, he, and he would constantly make that, that analogy. And I'm sure you've heard people make that analogy since then, right? They, do they quote Malcolm X when they say that? No, they don't, right? <laughs> so, so I think that you know, this was sort of critical. And, 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 and I think finally, he also wanted African Americans to have a positive perspective or realistic perspective, I should say, on, on Africa because he believed, particularly by 1964, that Africa and newly decolonized African nations would be critical in African Americans finally gaining what he called their human rights, finally gaining their freedom. And, and, and it's, what's important for us to understand is how and why he thought that the world, specifically Africa, could play a leading role in the redemption, in the improvement, in the advancement of, of African Americans. He, and that's why I wanted you to sort of read that interview he gave in July of 1964 when he was attending the organization of the second organization of African Unity Conference um, in, in Cairo, Egypt. Because he, he talked about, and I quote, it was always the world pressure that was upon America that enabled black people to go forward. It was not the initiative internally that the Negro put forth in America, nor was it a change of heart on the part of Uncle Sam. It was world pressure. And what he was arguing is actually something that historians and other scholars have been finding is there's a tremendous amount of truth to, which is that though we're taught this sort of civil rights narrative 
that by the mid-1950s, Americans began to recognize that Jim Crow segregation and that mass disenfranchisement was, was wrong, was morally wrong, and that these sort of struggles and, and movements were able to persuade Americans in how wrong it was, which then led to the Brown v. Board of Education decision in, in 1954, which, of course, declared segregated schools unconstitutional, which, which we're taught led to the Civil Rights Act of, of 1957, which, which we're told led to the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, which we're taught led to the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that people recognized that powerful Americans, that Americans writ large recognized that this problem was bad, and that essentially in recognizing that through the civil rights movement, America decided to fix it. That America has always essentially been moving forward through this sort of moral compass towards greater equality and freedom. And as a result, that period was was, was precisely that history sort of moving forward. Well, well Malcolm gave a different explanation. He, he stated it had nothing to do with Americans realizing anything and everything do with world pressure. Now, what did he mean when he said world pressure? What was he talking about? What was he talking about? Yes. Criticism, money funding for pushing others, like you know, civil rights organizations. So people outside forces trying to like change things inside. Yeah, and so specifically, yes. Communism and the idea of democracy when it's not being basically just when democracy wasn't really being applied to everyone. Sure, you were gonna say something. Oh, um, I was going to bring up how he um, talked a lot about Hitler and Germany and kind of compared America to that setting. Yeah, you know, going back to the Cold War, so you had, particularly after World War II, all of these nations, all of these places that were decolonizing in, in Asia, in, in Latin America, and, and, and certainly in Africa. And you had these two great superpowers, the United States and, and, and the Soviet Union, who, in many ways, the Cold War itself was these two forces not only battling each other for global supremacy, but also seeking to woo these newly created and sovereign nations ar around the world. And, and, and of course, Part of the America's part of America's pitch was that it's the land of what? Freedom. It's the land of equality. And for many of these nations who, who after World War II saw soldiers who fought black soldiers who fought in World War II coming back to places like Georgia and getting lynched, or who saw the ways in which that black woman who tried to desegregate the University of Alabama in the mid-1950s, uh, when they saw the treatment, when they saw the brutality, 
because this brutality and treatment, particularly in the 1950s and early 1960s, were being circulated in, in, in newspapers and media organizations around the world, it contrasted deeply with the United States pitch. It contrasted with that pitch. And, and so according to Malcolm and according to later historians, the United States recognized that in order to be able to truly woo and attract the markets and resources and, and relationships that would be born of creating sort of alliances away from the Soviet Union with these newly independent nations would be to correct this serious sort of problem at home. And, and, and so that's the case that sort of Malcolm, that, so that is what Malcolm believed was the fundamental engine of change, of civil rights change world, global pressure. And I think it's critical for us to understand that, to understand why he was so focused on getting African Americans to think positively about Africa. Because he saw African Americans' liberation as coming through Africa, specifically the United Nations. Um, and so when he, of course, spoke, or I should say created or wrote uh, a letter, um, an appeal to, to these Africans' heads of state who, who gathered together in, in July of 1964 for the Second Organization of African Unity Conference, he, he appealed to them, literally, and he described African Americans to them as, 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 quote, their long lost brothers and, and sisters. He argued this again and again, but, but I think the line in which he said over and over again really was, our problems are your problems. And he said this in this appeal over and over again, speaking to these, to these African heads of, of state. And, and he spoke about the brutality and the racism that African Americans were, were, were experiencing, but then he also talked about the brutality and racism that people from Africa were experiencing when they visited the United States. And what was interesting is, is he would talk about, you were mistaken for an African American, and so they brutalized you. Remember, he, he, he wrote about that, and, um, and, and, and so, he, of course, was, was making the case that, that what, what African Americans were lacking was fundamentally their human rights. And, and the reason why he emphasized human rights, even though civil rights was the term of the day, was because that would then allow him to connect what African Americans were seeking to what these African heads of states of newly decolonized nations were seeking, that, that really the decolonization movement itself was a movement for human rights, uh, the human rights to have sovereignty over your own land, to have the ability to control your economy, the ability to elect your own leaders, the ability to not be someone else's colonial subject. And he wanted... His fundamental goal in, in, in writing this appeal, in, in bringing African people worldwide together, in, in causing African Americans to, to, to 
to release themselves from anti-Aprian ideas was the, the sort of grand plan for Malcolm in the last year of his life was he wanted these African heads of states to help him bring the U.S. government before the U.N., before the United Nations, to charge the U.S. with violating the human rights of 22 million Africans, African Americans. He, he, he wanted, essentially, the U.S. to be brought before the world stage and ridiculed in the 1960s in the way South Africa had been brought before the world stage in the United States, in, 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 in the 1960s in ridicule. And he spoke directly to that in, in, in this appeal to these African leaders and, and, and stated that, quote, South Africa is like a vicious wolf, openly hostile towards black humanity. And I should say, I should preface this with, he actually said America is, did he say America was worse or better than South Africa? He said it was worse than South Africa. And he, he made this case that, that America was worse than South Africa because at least South Africa, he says, South Africa preaches segregation and actually segregates, while America preaches equality and segregates. And so for him, they were doing the same thing, but one was not openly admitting to what they were doing. But he also sort of said that South Africa is like a vicious wolf, openly hostile towards black humanity. Black America, I'm sorry, America, he said, is, like a, is cunning like a fox, friendly and, and smiling, but even more vicious and deadly than the wolf. And so, of course, he, 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 he framed South Africa as this vicious wolf and, and America as this cunning fox. And the reason why this is interesting is because it's a nice segue to what we're going to talk about next time, right? His views on the liberal versus the conservative, right? And he would, of course, make this case that, that both the liberal and the conservative are enemies of, of African Americans, but they're certainly different. And he would, of course, classify uh, the conservative as the vicious wolf and, and the liberal as the cunning fox. But I don't want to give that away. We'll talk about that next time. Thank you. Y'all have a good um, evening, and, 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 and I'll see you next week. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.